you again for tuning into the Reptile Living Room. I'm your host, as always, John F. Taylor. And today we're brought to you by Herpeticulture House Magazine, as always. That's uh, herphousemag.com. And in today's interview with an expert, we are talking with none other than Clayton Lewis Ferreira of the Central Florida Herpetological Society. And uh, he's a wildlife biologist, uh, herpetologist, um, done a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, basically, we're going to be talking about speciation of the anole uh, species that he is uh, writing his thesis on currently and doing research on. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So without further ado, here is Clayton Ferreira of the Central Florida Herbological Society talking about the speciation of anoles. And today we are on the line with none other than Clayton. And, Clayton, you're from the Central Florida Herbological Society. You're the president, is that correct? Yes, indeed. I'm Clayton Lewis Ferrara, and um, I'm uh, speaking from Winter Park, Florida right now. I am the current elected president of the Central Florida Herpetological Society uh, beginning in January of 2012, okay. and um, I am a biologist uh, specializing in uh, reptiles and amphibians. Now, that's something that actually took you abroad recently, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is being such a pronounced biologist, as it were, in the field of, you know, various zoology, you actually went to the UN to do some uh, work there, is that correct? Indeed, it is. Um, You know, interestingly enough, though I am a formally trained biologist, my real passion in life is education. I think that it is one of the most important things that we can do as biologists, mainly because there will always be this um, separation between public and the scientific world, um, and at one time that, that very much served uh, in, in a way, but I think that now, um, given the state of the environment, given the issues that, um, that younger generations are going to face within their lifetime in the next 50 years or so, that there really needs to be a, a backing away from that wall between public and and scientific knowledge. Um, so I'm very involved in education and speaking with non-scientists. Um, I, I, I serve as, as national science director to a uh, global nonprofit organization that's a recognized NGO with the United Nations, and it's called Ideas for Us. And the ideas uh, word is entirely in caps and stands for Intellectual Decisions on Environmental Awareness Solutions. And it was with them that I traveled to uh, the Rio Plus 20 conference in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, which was a conference uh, held 20 years after the Earth Summit conference in 1992. And it was basically to discuss environmental issues, uh, everything from renewable energy to food issues, um, issues dealing with um, social justice, um, equal rights for women in developing nations, and I was there as a voice uh, for the ecological interests, um, conservation, protection of endangered species, fighting against rainforest logging um, as a biologist. Okay, now that <laughs> that was quite a resume there. <laughs> now just for our listeners who are unaware, uh, because I actually do understand the terminology being used, uh, NGO means non-governmental organization. Um, and basically, yes. as far as my understanding of NGOs is this means 
you guys don't get squat for funding from the government. You guys basically do it on donations. I mean, all the research, everything that NGOs do is based on donations. And I think that's one of the missing elements, if I should say, um, in regards to the barrier between uh, science and the public is according to, you know, whatever newspaper you pick up today, there's $50 million for somebody to do research on, you know, the dung beetle, you know, and generally the public looks at that and goes, why are we researching a beetle that rolls turds on the ground? Not understanding that, <laughs> you know, the implications of this have farther reaching aspects than just, you know, a bug on the ground rolling a turd. Indeed, uh, you, you're precisely right. NGO stands for non-governmental organization, and and one of the things that many people don't realize is that in the um, uh, entity that is the United Nations, it is not just the leaders from uh, all of the countries that are aligned with that group. Um, certainly, it does include them, and certainly it does include many other government officials, but it also includes people from the private sector and scientists nonprofits, universities, uh, businesses, all of these things come together as the private sector, not affiliated with um, any particular government as far as funding goes. So um, when the United Nations invites uh, itself to come down to, to the tables and make decisions and things like that, um, this organization that I, I work with called Ideas is, uh, is invited as well. Um, and yes, we, we are a nonprofit. We do entirely function off of donations, um, as as many nonprofits do. People often don't realize that many of the most famous universities, hospitals, research institutions, all of those are also nonprofit organizations. And though we do seek granting from governmental organizations, um, we are not guaranteed funding. Uh, it's very much hand to mouth. Yeah. Um, and. And, and that can be certainly a very big hurdle. Yeah, and that's the thing. is, the, It seems like the more um, PhD students or even doctors, you know, even people that have achieved the, you know, acclaim of the PhD that I speak to, it, you know, my eyes were really opened when I uh, did another series on the fear of snakes when I was talking to people about, you know, why people fear snakes and what have you, is... Mm -hmm. You know, I asked them, you know, okay, well, how did you get, you know, how did you get to where you're at? And they're like, well, I spent, you know, X amount of years in the jungle, X amount of years writing research papers. And I'm like, okay, but how did you get to the jungle? And they're like, donations. <laughs> and it's like, wait, no. well, hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> you mean the government didn't tell, you know, didn't, you didn't sign up for a grant or, you know, you didn't get $10 million to go out and research it? And they're like, no, this isn't how it works. <laughs> you know, yeah. and this is the public misconception is that, you know, as soon as you become this, you know, as soon as you become a PhD student, the government just goes, oh, well, you're a PhD student. You deserve $10,000. Here, go research what you want. That's not no, how it if works. Only, <laughs> it, unfortunately, and, and, you know, it, it is, uh, it, considering if the public already has this perception of it being like that, it shouldn't be difficult to vote that in uh, by any means whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. You can't really get on that. Exactly. Um, 
but, uh, but no, unfortunately, that is that it, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, science is it, even even as a as a scientist, when you want your research published in a journal, uh, it's up to the scientists to pay the journal yeah. in order to have their research published, as opposed to the journal pay them. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I, I have many friends who make uh, a living. Uh, blogging about music or art or, or writing for Huffington Post or, or Wall Street Journal or wow. something like that, and and they do that. Uh, they, they're paid to do that. Um, right. Where the world of science is, is very different, um, and, uh, and 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 it has its perks to it, of course. I oh, mean, sure. Very. I mean, and, and we'll certainly go into to that further on the call. I don't want to get ahead of, of some of my talking points. Yeah. No. No worries. And you know, one of the points that I did want to point out is I actually investigated into uh, publishing in a science journal at one point. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the only reason I laughed is because, you know, I'm a starving artist, I'm a you know, starving writer. They, want, they wanted like $400 to publish the article. I was like, wait a minute, you want me to pay you? No, 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 yes. you don't understand. You're supposed to pay me to publish the article. <laughs> you know, and 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 it can be it can be. Uh, I mean, I have very mixed emotions about that. I don't think that it's right because I certainly believe in science for science's sake, and that's right. very important to disseminate this knowledge. Exactly. But I also think that it's important to to utilize the aspect of of peer review in all these articles. Exactly. And that that is one service that these uh, journals do provide is yes. that they have their own ability to screen things. Now, I certainly think that um, costs can be reduced by having journals migrate entirely over to the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, that can both be a, a blessing and a curse because oh, right. um, certainly I'm a fan of, 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 of the printed word, yeah. uh, and I definitely don't want to see that go extinct. But, um, but that, that is certainly a, a contested issue right now of, of what, what is the right way for these journals to go and it's very much so the same case with the textbook industry. There's a lot of, of talk right now about, uh, you know, bringing textbooks over to things like iPads and, and tablets and things like that, and, uh, and and what that will do for um, for the, the future of the written word, um, and if it will reduce costs um, for things like that, and then what kind of control they can have. So um, definitely, it'll be a very interesting next 20 years for for publishers of both scientific journals and uh, and textbooks. In academia, <laughs> yeah, and I definitely saw that you know recently in the news they were talking about you know textbooks going to the iPad and what have you and what the impact would be uh, mm-hmm. as far as you know universities and uh, college education levels would go. You know, as far as okay, you know now you have essentially have it for free. You know, so how are the colleges going to survive? Because basically, you know, that's where the money comes from. Really, is the textbooks. So it's 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 definitely going to be a very interesting next uh, you know two decades or what have you that it takes to work out what they're actually going to do. Now, as far as specifically your thesis paper uh, dealing with the knolls, um, what originally got you interested in reptiles in the first place? I mean, what was oh, it yeah, dinosaurs, absolutely. garter snakes? What was it? <laughs> <laughs> You know, interestingly enough, I, I, of all things, I had a conversation with someone about this uh, today. Um, I can I can blame two reptiles in spe- specifically uh, for uh, for getting me in the situation I'm currently in. Um, <laughs> I can blame two one, reptiles. That's awesome. <laughs> in, indeed, 
one of them uh, is a very infamous one and is probably responsible for many, many, many scientists, and that's most certainly the Tyrannosaurus Rex in the American Museum of Natural History in Manhattan. Um, when I first saw it uh, at the age of probably three, uh, it was one of my very first cognitive memories of walking into the hall uh, of dinosaurs there, and at that time, um, it was not um, uh, fixed to where uh, the tail was off of the ground. The tail still dragged on the ground, and Tyrannosaurus Rex stood in this type of rigid, erect pose, um, kind of akin to Godzilla or something like that. Uh, but um, I can't think of anything more uh, imagination-stimulating, exciting, um, beautiful than than that, especially to uh, young young children, particularly little boys. I mean, dinosaurs tend to tend to have that kind of magic to them. So I definitely blame Tyrannosaurus Rex for for that. Um, and also, uh, at the age of three, I was given my first box turtle. Um, by oh, my wow. parents, I lived uh, I lived in in New York, and uh, we were in Manhattan, and uh, and at that particular time, um, there were very interesting things going on with the importation of Chinese box turtles to Florida uh, and New York and the entire uh, Eastern Seaboard. Um, they were they were coming in, and at that particular time, there are a few species that are now CITES protected that were not. Right. And um, in particular, um, at this time, the, the turtle was called Guara um, flava marginata. It's now called Cystoclemys flava marginata. Um, and uh, it's uh, commonly referred to as Chinese box turtle or, or uh, marginated box turtle. Um, people sometimes call them flavos for short because of the species named flava marginata. Right. Um, but this box turtle... You know, I remember um, approaching, uh, uh, the shipment had just come in, they had them in a bucket, uh, and it was, you know, like most imports from Asia, it was just a, a terrible scene uh, of, of exhausted, dying, or ill animals, uh, and the one that managed to look up at me uh, was the one that I took home, and had that animal for 10 years uh, until it escaped from its enclosure back into the woods of, of Florida. By that time, my family and I had moved. Uh, from New York to Florida, like all good New Yorkers do eventually, and um, and uh, and uh, and unfortunately that was the last I saw of it. But but that, uh, I had already been uh, influenced for for ten years of of the fascinating world of reptiles and amphibians, and um, I think that box turtles are many many biologists that I have spoken to, herpetologist or not. Um, there's something very charismatic and personable about box turtles. Um, certainly, I love all reptiles. I, sure. I I certainly do. But there's something um, personable, and it's easy to anthropomorphize them, uh, probably more so than it would be a snake, uh, you know, or a bird of prey, or, uh, you know, or something like that. Um, and I think that from that, it, it definitely had an effect. So, pets, definitely... Um, and growing up, all my heroes have been scientists. Um, oh, all really? of the, absolutely. Um, all of my heroes have been dinosaur hunters. Um, all of the books that I read growing up were, um, you know, from the adult section of the library dealing with paleontology or, or ichthyology or reptiles and amphibians. Uh, my eighth birthday, I was given uh, 
Peter Pritchard's uh, Encyclopedia of Turtles, <laughs> uh, you know, for my eighth birthday. Oh um, yeah. And uh, and 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 this was the kind of life that I was, uh, you know, unfolding for me. And and I was very fortunate enough to have encouraging parents who, um, you know, are not biologists. I'm the first in my family to ever go to college, and um, they were just kind of in awe of, of what, not only where this was coming from but kind of at the ferocity in which I became so obsessed. Um, pretty much everything from my imagination to stories and things I would write to the things I would look for when I was outside and, and the hobbies that I had could all be compromised into this world of science. And reptiles and amphibians were, were a big part of that for sure. But I certainly came very close to becoming a paleontologist um, and, uh, and still kind of romanticize about that uh, later on in life and and even now in, in biology um, my area of specialty is, is uh, vertebrate zoology and dealing with um, comparative vertebrate zoology systematics taxonomy um, you oh. know of, of living organisms but a lot of that revolves around bones uh, and, yeah. and what are the differences between these different groups of animals and, and why is that interesting and, and, and those kinds of things to where um, you know I'm just teetering on a razor's edge of, of going totally into into rocks and paleontology and, <laughs> and moving out west. <laughs> <and going back. laughs> You're going to be the next Peter Pritchard. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's awesome. Now, um, you know, speaking of the whole paleontology thing, it seems like a lot of the people that myself and colleagues have spoken with over the years it's either been one of two things. It's either been garter snakes or dinosaurs that got them into reptiles eventually, and then they sure. eventually branched off. Why do you think that is, personally? Oh, easy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that um, dinosaurs are, are large, uh, they're extinct, uh, and there's nothing to really compare them to that's so magnificent in nature that's still around. I mean, certainly if we were to look at the other groups of animals uh, that exist today that are certainly, you know, quite grand, um, you know, you, that and, and at a large, you'd look at, okay, well, we've got, you know, we've got elephants and giraffes, we've got the, the cetaceans, uh, you know, and, and how magnificent they are. But, um, but then you go into the, the spectrum of, of other animals, and, and they're certainly, you know, smaller, um, you know, uh, we've, we've experienced a kind of megafauna die-off, uh, in, in the last, you know, 10,000 years, certainly. And uh, but you don't have things as big as dinosaurs. You don't have things as extinct uh, and that, are, that are as grand as, as a whole group of them. You can fill a whole museum with different kinds of dinosaurs. You'd be hard-pressed to fill a whole museum with, uh, you know, different species of bears or something like that. Um, and, and I think that because of, because of that, uh, you know, they kind of take center stage. Um, as far as garter snakes go, Again, and, and, and this is a perfect segue to go into why an old uh, for me, um, in that garter snakes are, can be more conspicuous than, than a lot of other reptiles. You see them when you don't necessarily expect to. Uh, they'll be the snake in your yard, the, the, the snake that you know, makes your mom freak out because it got in the garage and you have to go and, and get it out and let it go into safety, you know, uh, in, a, in a wooded area across the street. There, um, they're kind of uh, of an animal that uh, comes and goes 
if you're fortunate enough to be in an area where they're emerging from hibernation, I mean, that's one of the wonders of nature that I, that I, that I certainly uh, is on my bucket list without a doubt and, and possibly even, uh, you know, in, in top five things to witness is the, the millions of garter snakes coming out of hibernation after, after a winter. Right. Um, you know, th- those kinds of things are just are, are just wonders of nature and, and are conspicuous conspicuous things that once you're hooked, uh, they're, they're really easy to hook people. They're great point-of-entry animals. You know, I can't imagine uh, any, uh, you know, child under the age of five uh, who you would take into a museum to see dinosaurs and, and have them leave and go, well, you know, that's not really for me, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, <laughs> it's the kind of thing to where it's so awe-inspiring. Um, but 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 it certainly has to be presented in the right way, you know. Um, for many people, dinosaurs live in storybooks, uh, you know, and and for them, it's not as impactful as walking into that hall of dinosaurs, albeit in the Field Museum, albeit in the Museum of London or um, uh, the Museum in Paris or the American Museum of Natural History or the Smithsonian. But when you come face to face with these creatures and you that they that they did exist. They're not just in movies. They're not just in books. And you can stand there and look at them. Um, I don't. I don't think that there's there's any coming back from that. Yeah, you know, because me personally, when I read about dinosaurs, it was great. You know, I understood. Well, I thought I understood how big they were and what have you. But you know, when I went to the Natural History Museum and actually saw skeletal remains of you know how large these animals were. And that they were reptilian and cold-blooded and what have you. I was like, okay, that's some serious animal. <laughs> right. You know, that's not like you know the dog at home. <laughs> this is like, you know, right. I can eat you. <laughs> you know. And you know, something that you said, which um, kind of segues into another uh, section of topic that I wanted to talk to you about, is the snake in the garage that freaks your mom out. Why do yeah. you think? In your personal observations, why do you think people fear reptiles? Well, a couple of reasons. I think that um, uh, I, can, I can give a couple reasons. Um, I think that my brain defaults to the evolutionary reason first, because I think that's just kind of how I think. But um, I think that um, I think that as mammals, we may have some type of deep uh, uh, fear of of uh, of certain types of reptiles. And I think that um, that goes not just for uh, humans, but I think for all primates. Um, and I think that that may be something that is perhaps genetic um, or uh, is a learned response. Um, for instance, uh, you know, I'm having been in lots of different environments and, and right. dealing with animals uh, regularly. Um, I like to think that I'm I'm pretty thick-skinned about not being weirded out by all different kinds of creepy crawly creatures. <laughs> However, if if I'm uh, you know up in the middle of the night to get a glass of water or something, and I you know see a cockroach on the kitchen sink, even I will jump for a second, and then my brain will realize you know relax, it's, it's a beetle, you know, uh, right. and, and, and and not have that response. But I do have that response because it's been ingrained into me. It's a social response. It's not that I'm a of a cockroach, it's that since I could remember, you know, and, and, and growing up as a child, everyone I've ever known around me reacts that way to a cockroach, wow. so it becomes ingrained in me psychologically to react that way. And for many people, the exact 
same thing happens for snakes. Someone reacts that way. That's the only way they've ever seen someone react. Even if they understand that it's not venomous, even if they understand that it's not going to harm them, they still react that way, even though they know it's just a snake. It's, it's an ingrained thing behaviorally, and that behavior may have some genetic uh, deep reasoning uh, behind it initially. Um, so that's one reason. Uh, also, the other reason would be that some snakes are indeed venomous, and that people can be wary of that. Um, they may have heard that, um, you know, uh, don't go near any snake, uh, you know, they're all venomous, those kinds of things. Right. Um, they can be very different than human beings. Um, people tend to be um, warmer towards the things that they can relate to. And, of course, mammals relate to mammals best. Um, you know, you look at the most successful animals that have been poster creatures for conservation majority of them have been mammals. Now, luckily, in the reptile world, we have uh, the green sea turtle to really slap up as the, the, the perfect, uh, um, you know, poster child for, uh, for conservation success, um, which the green sea turtle certainly is across, across the board, thank goodness. Um, but the majority of these animals are mammals, whales, seals, um, you know, panthers, bears, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Eagles, uh, you know, in the case of birds, the list goes on and on. Um, very few reptiles are on that list. Um, so uh, they're, they're, they're different than people. Um, you know, in, in some cases, depending on where you are geographically and what country you're in, um, you know, you could have a religious aspect to it as well, um, in particularly um, uh, in in. in Catholicism and, and the religions that have spanned off of that. You've got the whole Book of Genesis business with, with <laughs> snakes and things like that. And and I think that um, in, in some in some geographic areas where that tends to be the the barometer of um, of 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 intellect uh, and thought, that that can be a contributing factor as well. Uh, I've come in contact with um, uh, because I've I've certainly uh, done education uh, and, and outreach in those types of areas. Um, so, uh, so yeah, th there's lots of reasons, and I, and I don't think that um, any of them are, um, are unfixable. Uh, you know, I've certainly seen people come back from from the brink of uh, of being absolutely terrified to where a snake, you know, is is just whispered to have been in the room, and uh, and the person is already out of their chair and getting ready to leave. Uh, and 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 after discussing with them, you know, about it and and, and talking about the snake and the animal. Um, you know, and, and even getting them to, to, to see it at arm's length, uh, you know, kind of peer over and, and, and look at the animal being held, uh, you know, maybe not touch it in that first day, but, um, you know, and then, and then, of course, you've got the other side of the coin of people who legitimately have clinical or psychological disorders to where they have an innate fear of a particular creature. I mean, there's people that are afraid of all different kinds of things on a clinical level, and certainly that does exist with snakes. But I think that that may be some type of brain malfunction that, again, taps back into that um, predisposed genetic fear uh, that we may have as primates uh, against snakes. Yeah, very definitely. Now, um, as far as your personal research goes, uh, speaking of evolution and taxonomy and what have you, you're looking at the speciation and hybridization of anoles, and I haven't read any of your research personally, mm -hmm. but I 
I I have a couple tendencies that I want to think that this is where you're going, but I want to I want to let you go ahead and explain to our audience, you know, okay, why is it that you started with the Knowles first of all, and then what are you hoping to uh, discover with your current research that you're doing? Ah, what a great question to answer. Um, well. Uh, my thesis uh, in, in my undergraduate uh, degree, uh, which I received from Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, I received a degree in both biology and also in environmental science. Um, my research was based on potential hybridization between Anolis sagarii, uh, which is the Cuban brown anole, and Anolis paraplanensis, which is the, the only anole that is native to uh, North America and of course the, the green anole, it's, it's called, um, or the Carolina anole in some um, And for me, anoles were my garter snakes. They were the, the creatures, both brown and green, uh, that existed around uh, every corner. Um, they were animals that I watched growing up from living in Florida from when I was six years old. My family and I moved to Florida, um, and particularly in South Florida, so these are everywhere, and I mean everywhere. Uh, and um, in being around those kinds of things, I was able to, to, to watch their behavior. I grew up watching these animals fight, uh, mate, feed, set up territory, uh, signal each other with their dewlaps, uh, oh, wow. I saw the effects of them uh, getting, uh, you know, having the population die back after particularly strange um, cold snaps um, and seeing how that would affect them in the coming seasons. All of this was done as an amateur naturalist um, before I went to uh, school and pursued this as, as, a, as a formal education. Um, but just because... You know, anyone, and this goes for any of your listeners out there, just because anyone may not have a, a formal degree in biology does not make them incapable of, of having scientific thought, collecting data, or being a contributor to the world of science. Wow, some, of the greatest scientists, wow. some of the greatest scientists to ever live uh, did not have degrees in biology. They may have had degrees in other areas of science, and certainly some of the, the Victorian naturalists um, you know, weren't formally trained. They trained because they this was what they loved and they knew it and they knew it better than anyone else. So it comes from, from hard work and, 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 and living what you love. Uh, and that was certainly the case with me. So I found myself um, kind of in the middle of my college education uh, doing research on, of all things, key stars. Um, a particular group of key stars called the Sirius Forbesi and the Sirius Rubens which are two types of sea stars that live um, in the Atlantic Ocean and um, are they have this type of, of allopatric speciation going on which basically means that at one time these sea stars um, were um, in contact with one another and some type of event occurred to where they um, became uh, separated um, there, were, there was a genetic barrier up um, in this case, a glacier, uh, they continued to speciate, and perhaps those barriers that would keep them from hybridizing um, began to degrade. And then when they came back into contact, there, there was a chance of hybridization, and indeed that did occur. So I began doing um, 
polymerase chain reactions, collecting DNA, uh, etc., and, and trying to pinpoint the level of hybridization that occurred in these sea stars. So um, that was all fine and dandy, uh, but then uh, when it came time for me to decide whether I would pursue a thesis, because it was not something that was required, usually a thesis is reserved for someone in their master's or their PhD, but I was particularly um, motivated and, uh, and thirsty for something like that, so I petitioned to uh, be allowed to, to do a thesis. Uh, I was approved, and for me, I knew exactly what I wanted to go for, and that was looking for if this hybridization between Cuban brown anoles and green anoles could potentially occur, um, because in one incident of walking to college one morning, I saw a green anole female uh, being copulated by a male brown anole, and um, from seeing this, uh, you know, I thought to myself, that is something I have never seen before, and I have been with these lizards for almost, you know, two decades. Um, well, at that time, less than that. Um, but uh, getting close to the decade. And um, I thought, you know, that is significant. And, that, you know, at that time, I was kind of, you know, walking to the lab to go and I pet all day long, uh, which is not as fun as it sounds for field biologists, um, but uh, that's what we have to do sometimes. And I thought, my goodness, that is precisely what I'm going to do. So um, I guess just to talk a little bit about hybridization now and, 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 and what that is, of course we all know that what certain animals cannot breed with other animals. You can't take a giraffe and a lion and get some kind of combination there. Right. But sometimes you can do that with similar, more more similar animals. Mm -hmm. Usually sometimes even animals in the same family, in the same genus, um, and particularly in animals that are very closely related to one another. Um, so, of course, you've got the famous uh, example of the, the liger, the lion-tiger hybrid, um, mm -hmm. to where they were able to, to do that. Um, and, uh, and, and you produce a sterile hybrid. Of course, the same thing comes on with horses, mules, donkeys, that whole kind of thing, again, a sterile hybrid. Right. Um, so uh, this hybridization aspect is particularly interesting in the area of evolutionary biology, in understanding how organisms evolve, and when they do evolve, what types of forces are at work that cause them to evolve in that manner. Um, because I will, I will make a, 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 a definite point of this in that evolution is by no means random in any way whatsoever, right. um, nor is natural selection the main vessel uh, that evolution kind of rides on. Mm -hmm. um, so by, by evolution not being random, um, you have to look at the forces that are at work that cause certain organisms to, to go the route that they do. And hybridization... Is, is newly looked at as something that uh, that could be a contributor in this, in that because the world is dynamic, because we live in a planet that is changing in climate, in having mountains rise from the crust of the earth that were not once there, and that we may be having glaciers form and melt in the eons of time and create barriers and then dropping them, that through the annals of Time, we have had these species that live on the planet come in and out of contact with one another, and that perhaps hybridization can be a contributor to uh, to evolution. So, uh, in the case of these sea stars, that's certainly a great way to look at it. Um, 
and, and was indeed the case. Uh, and in the case of animals, uh, hybridization has been reported in species of animals in the Caribbean um, and also in the Neotropics. And because of that, um, this was a great uh, way to, to kind of look at, uh, at this issue. Man, that's, <laughs> that's just amazing. Now, uh, how, how far are you into your research, if, if we may ask? Because I know yes, of course, of course. That's, some people uh, are really tight-lipped about their research, so I, you know, I always want to ask you, if we can ask. <laughs> of, of course, uh, of course. And, um, you know, not to, to take the, uh, the, the initiative to speak for the whole field of, of, of biology by any means, but oh, many, sure. times when, many times when scientists are, are weary about talking about their research, it's largely because um, they have competition that are fighting. Oh, very different. They have competition. Science is a very, very egotistical, competitive field. It goes very back uh, in, in, in modern science of how we think of it, um, kind of coming out of uh, uh, the 17th and 18th century of it being kind of a, a aristocrat's hobby um, for the particularly financially well-off um, who had uh, the means to spend their time memorizing plants and looking at bones all day instead of uh, being out and, and digging ditches for the rest of the population, um, that, uh, that, that this, this kind of um, uh, battling for um, supremacy and clout uh, exists. And when you throw money into the mix in modern uh, science, then it can become particularly bad. Um, so, uh, so when we're fighting for grants and things like that, very often uh, it's, it's to remain tight-lipped. So if, if our funding, for instance, was secured no matter what by the government, for instance, mm -hmm. and we weren't fighting so difficult, uh, you would probably find that scientists may be more vocal about science that is currently uh, you know, in the pot simmering. Um, right. So anyway, uh, where I am right now with this research is that I have done an analysis of, uh, of two ways. There's a couple ways to look for hybridization in any organism, lizard, sea star, or uh, or not, you know, uh, oh, okay. and that and that's looking at the um, phenotypic traits, which are traits that are how the animal looks. Is this scale in the wrong place? Does this animal have a scale that's a combination between scales of other animals of of, of uh, the the two species in question? Does it uh, does it have um, you know uh, physical ways of detecting? So that's one way. That would be the phenotypic route. Then there's also the genetic route. And with the genetic route, you're, you're literally looking at the DNA. And you're looking at DNA from two lineages. You're looking at the lineage of the mother of the animal question, the potential hybrid. And that would be your mitochondrial DNA, because mitochondrion are inherited uh, on the maternal lineage only. So um, if you've got mitochondria, you're dealing with the maternal lineage. And then you've also got your um, uh, nucleic DNA, which measures your your paternal lineage, the the male uh, in the in the in the situation. So for me, um, because funding was unfortunately limited, and I was rather eager to graduate, uh, and was was trying to crunch this research into uh, a time span, um, I was able to do an analysis on the mitochondrial DNA, and right now I have my specimens in cold storage, so that. Um, when I'm a little bit less busy with uh, the sustainability hat I've decided to put on and, and my, my um, obligations 
with, with networking with all of these uh, connections through the United Nations, um, I intend on fully putting back on uh, that uh, geneticist hat and going and doing the nucleic analysis of, of this particular uh, group that I'm looking at here. So it was 220 animals in all that I went and caught all over Florida and analyzed with the phenotypic differences on these 220 animals, came up with a, a small group that I thought may be uh, intermediates, and took DNA samples from these intermediates, and then analyzed the DNA, looking at an animal that I knew was a pure uh, Anolis carolinensis and a pure Anolis sagrii, and uh, used them for both morphological reference, but also for uh, genetic reference as well, and came up with um, some interesting interesting things that, that require uh, probably the most famous line in all of science, that this research requires more research in order to... <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I love that line in science, because it just means we're Absolutely. working harder. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It, 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 it's twofold. It means we, you know, please, sir, we would like to continue having a job and, and please send the check, uh, you know, to here. Uh, you know, and, and that, that's, that's kind of, you know, what that means. We, we need, we have lots of more work to do. It's very promising and we need more money. So. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so. Okay. Now, in closing out, Clayton, uh, we always like to ask our guests if money was no object, and area was no object, there was basically nothing to prevent you from doing what you wanted, what would be the one species of reptile that you would keep? Hmm. Well, <laughs> I think that um, one species, now that's hard. Uh, I can definitely go into a group. Um, okay. Of course, uh, I love colonians, and uh, turtles and tortoises are, are definitely uh, you know, where, where it's at for me, and, and, and most likely where uh, I view my my future uh, really descending towards. Yeah. I think that if I had to pick one species, it would definitely be the radiated tortoise. Um, I think that they are really the uh, the most beautiful tortoise in the world, and I think that that is um, kind of a cliche. Uh, usually, when you talk about radiated tortoises, that's that's kind of how it's stamped. But to be in the presence of them, uh, from hatchling to particularly when they're about the size of a softball. Uh, right. And when they're at that softball size, um, <laughs> they're just so striking. And I've, I've seen people from all walks of life, uh, you know, walk up to, uh, you know, a, a, a bucket that has, uh, or, or a bin or something like that that has, you know, um, sides that you can't see through. And they walk up to see what's in the bucket. And there happens to be a radiated tortoise in there. And, and everyone just has air escape their mouth. They just literally gasp. They're oh, taken yeah. aback. At, at the view of the animal, that that something could could really look like that, and and there's there's a particular mystique on them too because they're so endangered. They live in such a difficult, in arid environment. They live in an area where so many different pressures are are facing the poor people there of Madagascar, driving them to have no food, to be living in such terrible um, poverty that a radiated tortoise costs ten 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 dollars. In Madagascar, a ten-dollar meal uh, of, of to eat a radiated tortoise there, um, where if the animals in the United States it suddenly cost ten thousand dollars. Right. Um, so that's an incredible conservation issue, and um, I'm actually looking to to travel to Madagascar this coming January or February, um, 
and uh, and, and work with uh, with a with a doctor who deals with um, uh, uh, poison dart frogs um, from uh, Cornell and Cambridge. And uh, her and I are looking at a project to not necessarily do scientific research, but to travel to Madagascar to try to set up a nonprofit that helps the indigenous people that are living in Madagascar take control of their own conservation of their own species and to also try to bring them into um, more of a solid ground uh, addressing their own sustainability issues. Because very often in these, these war-torn countries where there's uprisings and things like that, it leaves a perfect door open for many other interests to kind of slip in. And in particular in Madagascar right now, you have the Chinese mafia controlling mahogany wood uh, uh, harvesting. And with the Chinese mafia there and, um, and, and kind of doing their best to, to monopolize that, along with a whole host of other corrupt influences, um, it makes it very easy for animals to slip out under the radar in the illegal wildlife trade, which remember, the illegal wildlife trade is only second to drugs and three, I believe, is illegal arms. So uh, illegal animal trade is beating out guns uh, as far as, as things being traded internationally. So. Um, uh, wow. It is certainly a, a very big problem um, going on here in that you've got tortoises in Madagascar all being smuggled out and sold for tens of thousands of dollars to people all over the world, and the ones that remain in the national parks that are supposed to be protected by the people of Madagascar are getting eaten uh, because they're, they're starving and living in terrible poverty. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a real difficult problem that... Um, I'm looking forward to learning more about. Yeah, very definitely. And I've heard more and more of that going on. And, and I I really hate the term third world country. But Yes, it is a in, shame. And um, unless, um, uh, I don't even know how to put it, less economically advanced co countries, I guess. I, I, I really just don't like saying third world countries. But in countries less fortunate than the United States, um, you know, people are being taught that, you know, okay, hey, look, these guys over here will pay $10,000 for your tortoises. Stop eating them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, is basically what it boils down to. And it seems like, you know, the more that science advances, the more conservation that happens. And then here in our own country, well, you know, we have states that slaughter 10,000 pounds of rattlesnakes every year. Uh, yes. Uh, now, is that, again, and well, in your personal opinion, Mike, is this an evolutionary thing, or, you know, because it just blows me away how this happens. Well, it's a social, it's a social thing. Uh, it, it goes back to dealing with the ecology of, of humanity, because when you talk about humanity, look at things in an ecological perspective, remember ecological is both a combination of biotic and abiotic factors. Right. There are many abiotic factors that affect the human condition that you don't discuss when it comes to other animals. Um, traditionally, abiotic is, of course, things like temperature, uh, you know, um, uh, salinity, uh, the list goes on and on of things like right. that, but you've also got things like um, education, uh, uh, literature, um, culture, uh, things that are not necessarily living, but aren't necessarily uh, in either. So, um, 
you know, it's it's a very interesting thing. I think it is a social, it's certainly a social problem. It is certainly an element of social justice. Uh, and uh, I don't like the term third world either. Uh, and I think that the real difference is the fact that many of the countries that are considered to be third world have had their resources, their culture, and the way that they govern themselves taken from the people who live there, albeit by imperialistic conquerors over the last 500 years, mm-hmm. or um, or by people who uh, come in from the outside to these countries and seem to have more material wealth, seem to have uh, uh, things that they want. Um, certainly that's something that we see with China. China is by no means a third world country. Um, uh, it's certainly uh, impressively uh, modern. I've, I've been to China a few times, and, and it's, it's a very interesting uh, uh, it's a very interesting country, and um, and I think that um, I think, but but I think that certainly they're running to catch up with the first world. They're run, uh, you know, per se in the in the materials that we have. Uh, okay. For instance, uh, the the biggest purchaser of Rolls Royce is China. Uh, you know, and and there are areas in China where you're hard pressed to see a car other than a Rolls Royce. Um, and uh, and this is again because uh, you know they're experiencing a massive economic boom, and they can buy you know five hundred thousand dollar cars like uh, it's nothing. Right. Um, but then of course you've got to contrast with people who are living very very poor, and a country that likes to call itself communist uh, at the same time. So it's it's very strange. Um, but uh, I guess to just kind of get back back into the question here, um, you know. Uh, I think that um, I think that the answers to many of these problems facing endangered species mm-hmm. and uh, and this this culture that um, that uh, views animals uh, as not equal, um, you know, is something that uh, that I certainly believe can be changed through the youth. And I think that um, unfortunately there are many many young people who are victim. To, uh, the bad decisions of their parents, uh, their grandparents, and the other adults around them, and they get kind of inhaled into this um, this cycle uh, of, of of looking at the world around them as something to be uh, raped and pillaged for their own purpose, because uh, that's what they have to do. Um, and for many, that is indeed the case, and that's a shame. Um, so I truly feel, and again, why I am kind of in this mode that I am, uh, where I, I really do believe education and conservation are the most important things that I can do, um, it is, that, uh, is that that's where the answer lies. Um, it really does lie in, in talking to young people and getting them interested in these things, because I'm a living testament to that, and I'm sure many, many of your listeners uh, and readers are as well. Something happened to them in their youth to where they were affected by nature and the world around them. It changed their life, and it has added an incredible wealth of joy and pleasure to their existence. And for many people, and you can look at the differences between what someone does, what they view as important, what they view as not as important, and how they treat their fellow people. Uh, directly proportionate to whether or not they've had a connection to the natural world. And I think that poverty is certainly something that is not just monetary. There's definitely a poverty of the spirit. And someone who doesn't know nature is most certainly in poverty. So I think that that is something that, uh, that I really do fight to change every day. 
you know, and that's something else that I actually saw, and I don't recall where it was, but they actually did a, there was a scientific research study that basically showed that the human primate that was exposed to nature as a child actually prospered better than those who weren't. And I wish to gosh, now I, I wish I would have held on to that study because it was a, a really fascinating study. And I don't recall who did it. And I want to say it was Mark Beckoff, but I'm not positive on that. Mm -hmm. But, uh, wow. I mean, just Clayton, fascinating interview. I really appreciate your time uh, coming on with us on the Reptile Living Room here. Um, would definitely like to have you on again. Uh, Absolutely. It, it, is, it is my pleasure. And, uh, and, I, and I really do thank you uh, very much for this opportunity. I, I love things like this. I think that they're very important. Um, I would like to just uh, to throw out that um, uh, any of your listeners can feel free to reach out to me um, awesome. via, uh, via my email, um, uh, which is clay, C-L-A-Y, at think, T-H-I-N-K, terra, T-E-R-R-A, firma, F-I-R-M-A, dot org. Uh, and also, if you'd like, uh, you may check out the uh, website for the um, sustainability-based youth movement NGO that I currently work for called Ideas, and that website is ideas4us.org. And um, I think that uh, there may be resources there that, um, that they may be interested in. And, uh, and again, any, any updates on things that I'm doing or other topics you'd like me to weigh in on and uh and certainly i'm always up for debates as well so awesome. it has been it has been a pleasure uh it's been a pleasure and, and i do appreciate you and your listeners yeah and i will definitely put a link to uh in the shows to both the uh website and your uh, email address as well as the uh uh central florida herbological society there and Indeed. Uh, yeah and there you have it, folks that was clayton lewis ferrero from the central florida herbological society and uh there will be some uh, show note links uh, within the podcast on the page, so please do check out those links and uh, support Clayton and his uh, colleagues there at Central Florida Herpological Society, and we will see you next week right here in the Reptile Living Room. Thanks for tuning in.